Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. Hey, playwrights. Welcome to Hey Playwright, a podcast about playwriting and life. Third time is the charm, right? Journey, Tori. What a journey. Yeah. Technical difficulties, everyone. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was sharing that we are in the middle of a forced remodel of the kitchen. Um, for anyone that's ever had a, uh, a flood in their ceiling and they can't figure out where it originated, those are just, they're so fun, you know? It's, it's like a like a mystery. I was going to say, it's like a mystery novel. <laughs> yeah, you, you bring out the, the, the solar company to look and they say, it's not, we didn't do it. It's your pool solar. And you bring out pool solar and they say, nope, not pool solar. And then you realize it's not the roof, which is a good thing, actually, because it's this, it, it felt like a little more contained. It's the ceiling. There was a, a leak in a pipe. So we had a plumber, we had to cut into the ceiling, we had to cut into the wall, remove a cabinet, mold. Uh, not too bad though, I think we caught it just in time. You know, I looked and saw that the back of the cabinet was soaked. Mm. I said, oh, we gotta get all this stuff off. So I got everything out of the cabinet and they're oak, they're real wood. Our cabinets are, are nice, you know? Um, and the back can be replaced on that cabinet, but pulled everything out. And I'm so glad I did because the weight of it, if we had not done that and taken it down pretty quickly, it could have fallen off and that would have been a mess. So I cleared everything off of the counters, got the plumber out. To, we found the, where the pipe, where the leak was, he fixed the pipe. And, and now, and now, right now, I walked out and there's just an enormous hole in the ceiling and in the wall because water just it just likes to destroy it's the source of life but also in your walls and ceiling not great yeah oh <laughs> not great because what happens is um and for anyone who's had this you you know it the drip was in a pipe in the ceiling and then it uh dripped onto a brace like a metal brace and then just traveled down oh. just looking just looking for a place to soak. Dang. Yeah. I know. But if we're getting it fixed and 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 hopefully in I, I'm just just keep me in your thoughts <laughs> that it'll just be a month that we'll sure, have Corey, countertops and <laughs> So wait, okay, so but so on the upside, you you yeah. said that Ron has been wanting to remodel the kitchen. So like I think that's exciting. So that's a very it's, it is a forced remodel. It, it is, is not by your choice, but at least like right. you're going to have a new space. So are you also going to be replacing all of the cabinets or No, no, we're going to paint, you know. He's a paint contractor. So he'll he'll paint. It'll look very nice. Um we're probably going to go with a white uh, that'll look really nice with the black steel, but he wants these white countertops. I don't like. I'm not a fan. Like I'm what? Not does, a fan does he have like? A, is it a the stone countertops or kind of? I think it's not marble. Uh, is see, it? Yeah, I don't know. No, 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 no. Because that's hardcore. <laughs> marble that's is. Hard. Mm, I don't is think very we could afford delicate. That. <laughs> 
No, I think I think it's probably granite. But he showed me a picture, and I went, "Oh, yeah, that's hmm." You know, I I I think he is really a fan of not a lot like minimalist stuff, and what I'm the opposite. Yeah, and and how how do the two meet? <laughs> <laughs> I know. So we'll see. I I trust him though because he he is a paint contractor. He sees a lot of construction. He sees a lot of houses, and he works with a lot of designers. And he really knows what he's talking about. So I'm trying to. I'll have a new kitchen. Okay, you'll have a but new I kitchen. Did say, and I think that's exciting. But I did. It is exciting. But I did say. You know, I should get a say. I'm the one in there cooking. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair. Well, I mean, I guess like right? functionality-wise, are there are there like places where you're where mm. things could be made easier for you? Are you drinking a a bottled Coke? No, no, no. It's ice. Oh, tea. I was. I thought you were drinking like <laughs> it looked. <laughs> it looked. Y'all can't see. This is just a Lipton, no sugar added brewed tea. You know, we live in California. I should be making sun tea. We used to do it all the time in Arizona, and it was amazing. Ron told me when he was a kid um, that people would put their sun tea out, and he and his friends would steal it and leave a note. Thank you for the tea. What assholes, man. (laughs) I love it. It was pretty funny, but yeah. Um, you just reminded me of something. This is this is going to be a very windy, the scenic route for this story. <laughs> sure. So you reminded me of drinking, you know, when you were a kid, you would drink tea, sun tea. So when I was a kid, we would drink limonada, but so like lemonade, but it was yeah. it was made with limes, right? So limonada. Um, that and like so good. Oh, my gosh. It, have you never had it? Have you never had? No, that sounds amazing. <gasps> I have to make it for you, Tori. I have to make it for uh, you. I made it the other day and I was like, gosh, this is so good. That is, if there are, you know, there's there's flavors from your childhood. Limonada is the flavor of my childhood. Mm-hmm. But I was having a conversation with my kid and um, and we were talking about um, lemons versus limes, right? So I, you know, having grown up in a Mexican household, like limes were the thing. We very rarely had lemons around. Uh, and then he was telling me, and maybe people know this, but I did do not did not know this. Um, but my kid is a big lemon, the yellow lemon fan. And I say yellow because in Spanish, limon is used for both um, lemons and limes. Um, oh. And so, but you would say limon amarillo for the yellow lemon. Um, again, sounds redundant. I just heard it, but um, but he told me that lemons are man-made did you know that i did not know that yes 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 they they are a hybrid what how does he know this is this something he learned at school (laughs) that is really interesting huh yeah it's a hybrid of a citron and a sour or bitter orange this sounds like a play yeah but i thought that was really fascinating because you would you know i don't know i I didn't know that. I feel like, and I love, I love me a good lemon. Yeah, we have <laughs> a lemon, lemon tree. 
we have that's why he's that's why oh. he is is all about the lemons because we have this really nice lemon tree when i was growing up we had a lime tree my grandparents had a lime tree and so oh, um yeah so there was oh that's why there was always limeade because the tree would just like flourish with the limes i tried to grow a lime tree when we first moved into our house and like it didn't work out mm -mm. but i mean that's more me than anything else you know what i want for my birthday tori my birthday's coming up i told john it is coming up what do you want i want plants i just want plants what plants i want plants for my birthday he's like no i'm not gonna do that to the poor plants <laughs> i'll get you a plant i know i know varieties that are hardy and it's hard to kill so i will get you some I will get you some. I feel like you should start you should start a business called Hard to Kill Plants. Hard to kill. Well, I mean, of course, like if you poured bleach in the plant, yeah, I, it's not that, that would kill it. Yes. But I'm saying you there are certain varieties that you can neglect, shall we say, and they will still do okay. Okay, now granted, I am not the best plant person. But I have, there's a couple of varieties I've managed to keep alive. So I'm sharing that with you. Yeah. I do love them though. I love looking around and seeing plants in my yeah. house. I, See, yeah. That's what I need in my life. Yeah. That's yeah. Keeping things, keeping things alive, keeping things feeling that make me feel good about the world. And you know what else is making me feel good about the world, Tori? What's that? This play that we're working on right now. <gasps> Oh my gosh, it's it is so much fun. The creative team is amazing. I feel I feel very lucky to be a part of that creative team. Having a blast. It's your play. Your play that you wrote. Yes. It's called Remember That Time. Yes. It's super I just I just love every bit of it, but it is so beautiful watching you direct. You know, yesterday when we had this or, you know, or we had a close out or check out with our, the circle. And I really was like, is this as good as it gets? And it's really good. You know what I mean? Like it, fe it felt so good. Like the actors are spectacular. The design for the piece is just like, it's all coming together and it looks incredible. And it just, this is the height, the, the top, the, cause it's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful to me. I don't know. And I think it's just because there's a lot of layers to this project, right? Yeah, like where it came yeah. from, when it happened, like where it was born. <laughs> um, so. And the excitement and the anticipation about getting it to share, getting to share it with the intended audience, yes. I think is also, and I know that we are being very cryptic in our in our messaging we'll share more as it unfolds as yeah. the production unfolds but we'll say that there will be an opportunity for the public to see this production for free mm -hmm. here in san diego um, and so we will post that information in the show notes it'll be the weekend of october 20th um yeah so that there'll be that opportunity and more I think will be forthcoming and i think it's just the beginning this is this is the first and then there'll be many more to come I, and it, it does feel it does feel very good so it, yeah ah mm -hmm. it's it's my heart is full tori and i yeah i just i i really do think that you are just such an amazing director to work with 
one one thing I've noticed from from this team that is different from other experiences I've had is there it's just such a wonderful respect that everyone has for everyone else and and everyone's opinion is valid and every voice is heard and it just feels very safe yeah and and so I that does differentiate it from other experiences I've had so that's great yeah that is the way to do theater yeah right and so this play is a play that it was written for an intended audience, but it's really a, a piece, a multi-generational audience's piece or a TYA piece, as as the kids say sometimes. Why I bring that up, here's my segue into. I love uh, it. So coming up later this month, I have the honor of having um, one of my plays that I co-authored with the homie, Alvaro Sarrios. Um, it is going to be performed at the 5th Annual La Vida Es Cortos Life is Shorts Festival, being presented by Teatrix, which is a theater company in Houston, Texas. And um, they will be presenting our play, uh, Like a Jet-Fueled Mariposa. So the 5th Annual La Vida Es Cortos Life is Shorts Festival celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month by celebrating Latinx stories written for and by the Latinx community. And tickets are available now. Why uh, it's particularly special, I think, is because this is the first year where they have programming for young audiences. Normally, it's been it's been plays that are for adults, but this year they, they decided to do something for the kids. And so our play is part of the TYA programming, but so is Ramon Esquivel's, who is our Yay. guest today. Ramon Esquivel is our friend and a wonderful playwright, director, and educator. His plays include O Cascadia, The Hero Twins Blood Race, Luna, The Scheherazade Society, Nasty Nocturnal, and Dulce. His works are featured in the anthology Palabras del Cielo. He is the assistant professor of theater at Cal Poly State University, San Luis Obispo. And we, Tori, often find ourselves on bills together or working on projects together. So it is my great joy and honor to welcome Ramon to Hey Playwright. Yeah. Hi, welcome, Ramon. Thank you so much for joining us on Hey Playwright. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Good to talk to both of you. This is so cool. Oh, my gosh. It is so cool. And uh, I hope we get back to the Carrie, the musical conversation we were having before we started recording. But before we get into that, Ramon, could you please tell us how you came into theater? Sure. So I was born and raised uh, right outside of Seattle, a suburb of Seattle called Kirkland, Washington. Uh, went to suburban school, a good school, John Muir Elementary. Uh, my element, it's funny, my element, my school district growing up, uh, all the names of schools are like environmentalists and poets, like Emily Dickinson, for example, and Horace Mann, John Muir, like a naturalist, right? So that's kind of gives you a, a sense of the kind of place where I grew up. Um, and, you know, I had that acting bug. I liked the spotlight. So even in elementary school, I was auditioning for school plays. I liked to do skits and things like that. My friend group just happened to be very creative and funny people. Even when we were just playing around, we would 
we'll, we'll do voices and things like that. But now that I'm talking about it, even as a little kid, I used to go outside in the backyard and do make-believe totally by myself, right? The back deck would become a spaceship and I would climb trees and it'd be, it'd be a tree on a different planet. So I was a pretty dramatic kid, right? But very much on the performing side of things. And I, that continued into junior high and high school when I did school plays and musicals and things like that. Um, and in college, I continued acting. I was in, you know, college productions and things like that. I also liked to write as a kid. I was a very imaginative kid. Um, a story I like to tell is I, I would be sitting in church and, you know, my church had Sunday school for the kids like after the main service. It wasn't like during the service. So the kids had to sit and listen oh, wow. to the adult <laughs> sermon. So you could imagine it was quite boring for, for a kid often, right? So I would take the, the church program and draw spaceships in the little notes section and write stories. And um, I grew up in a, a small house with, you know, my mother and father. My great grandmother lived with us for the first 10 years of my life. Three siblings, so pretty packed. Uh, but I claimed the desk in the living room. I even put a little sign up that said Bub's Studio. But Bub, B-U-B, is a nickname I've had since I was a baby. And, like, to this day, my siblings joke about it. Like, Bub's Studio. <laughs> oh, you're working at Bub's Studio. Because that's where I would write. That's where I'd write my stories, right? But interestingly, I didn't actually connect my writing and my my performing until much later, like, in, it wasn't until college that I really started thinking about writing dramatically. Um, and in fact, the way I found my way to playwriting was actually through teaching. Uh, after I graduated from college, I was a history major. So I was teaching middle school at a school in Washington, D.C., um, English and history. But that middle school needed somebody to direct the school play. And they were like, you know, people who don't know theater, they're like, well, you know theater, right? You can direct, you can... <laughs> And me, I was just like, sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I've never done it before, but I've acted a lot, so I'll see how that is, right? And I ended up loving directing more than acting, which surprised me. And so I went to graduate school. I went to New York University's program in educational theater, which actually lives in the School of Education. Um, it's now called the School of uh, Development School of Culture, Education, and Human Development, right? But it was just called the School of Education at the time. Uh, but this theater program is in an education school, so it's very much about how you apply theater in classrooms and things like that, in community outreach, things like that, theater of the oppressed and the like. And while I was in graduate school planning to become a director, I took my first playwriting class. So I wrote my first play, uh, 30 years old, um, based on experiences I had as a kid about the, actually the passing of my, my great-grandmother at this place called Dulce, and found, wouldn't you know it, I actually love playwriting uh. most of all, right? <laughs> but it took me 30 years, you know, to get there, right? Um, and it's fascinating, because I don't know, for you two, um, I think for so many kids especially, when we think of theater, we think of the acting uh, first, if not exclusively, right? Like we don't really get a lot of exposure to designers and certainly stage managers and dramaturgs and all these other people who contribute to making theater. So I think for so many young people, the thought of making a life in theater is only as an actor, right? Um, 
And don't you know, sometimes there's other aspects of theater making that are much more appealing and much more exciting, much more interesting. Um, but so I've, I've always been interested in programs that do playwriting in elementary schools and uh, give them a chance to work with designing costumes and things like that, just to help young people realize earlier that there's many, many ways to contribute to this wonderful art form. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. What a great uh, way to find your way in. I feel like a lot of people that we've spoken to on the program have said that they didn't realize there were people still writing. I was going to say that, Tori. I was like, we, we keep hearing, <laughs> oh. like, I didn't even know that there were living playwrights, you know, because I think that and yeah. that speaks to who, um, mm -hmm. who we as students in schools are exposed to. Yeah, not only not only the schools, but also what our professional theaters produce. True, right? You know, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna go to the theater at all, right? I mean, so many young people, their families just don't regularly go to the theater, and there's lots we can explore about why that could be, right? But um, yeah, I, I I like to equate it to. Developing a, an audience for new work, whether it's for, you know, adult audiences or young audiences and theaters or even educational theater programs saying like, well, we want to do plays. Nobody comes to new stuff. Nobody goes to new work. I like to equate it to uh, a parent who only feeds their kids chicken nuggets. Right. And they're like, well, the only thing they'll, they'll eat is chicken nuggets. And I'm like, well, whose fault is that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what are the options you're presenting early on and how are you presenting the vegetables and all the good stuff. And so I really feel it as the theater artists and the theater professionals, like it's our responsibility to present a much more varied palette, if you will, you know, a menu to choose from, right? Maybe your theater isn't all original works, but you could do one a, a season, right? Uh, especially if it's a local playwright, right? Like, why not? You've got every city has a a community of artists right and so much of the regional theater network especially is about hey we our responsibility is to bring that fancy new york play to san diego yeah. or to seattle and to portland right and meanwhile i'm sure like the san diego playwrights are like I, i'm right here you're like Hi. i literally come to your <laughs> theater to see your shows i live here like you don't have to pay me you know for me to fly i don't have to stay at a hotel right. right i'm right here Right. So I'm so curious about that. Right. Um, How do we do that, Ramon? <laughs> I, I have ideas, you know, I've um, you know, now. So to continue with my story, people who don't know me, you know, I actually taught middle school for about 15 years and I made this sort of unusual jump into higher education. So I'm now a theater professor at Cal Poly State University in San Luis Obispo, just Central Coast, right up the road. <laughs> about five, six hours for you all. Um, but I, I, I now sort of see myself in this position of being one of those gatekeepers, right? And whereas before I thought of gatekeepers keeping folks like us out, right? Now I see my role as, hey, I'm in a good position to open that gate wider, right? Um, so what I try to do is, you know, I go into new play exchange. I, I pay attention to new play development programs, things like that. Um, I kind of feel like I can complain about it or I can do something about it. I really do both. <laughs> I complain and try to do something about it, right? Um, but I think the key is 
creating an ethos, creating an attitude around new play development where the opportunity to see something for the first time and to help artists refine a vision of something that's never been seen before, really helping audiences value that process, mm. right? Mm. Versus the idea of here is something that has been proven elsewhere. We're going to pr bring it to you here so you can be part of that conversation, right? So I think it's just helping audiences realize that it's a slightly different theatrical experience, right? It's not just about seeing something that has already been refined and is packaged in a slightly different way. It's, you know, it's, it's like that, that seat in a restaurant that's in the kitchen, right? Where there's that one table where you get to watch the cooks make everything, right? And you get to eat, right? It's not just the tables that are out there and the food magically appears in front of you, right? So I think more theaters need to have that seat in the kitchen, right? That table in the kitchen, because it's so exciting to see, oh, this, mm, you know, seeing the, the, the seasoning that's going on there, right? They get to taste a couple of things, right? Does this work? Like, this isn't on the menu. Try this. What do you think about this, right? But I think that takes time to cultivate. And I think you can do that with young people, too. Um, make, you know, what third, fourth grader doesn't want to be like, you all are the first people who are seeing this. <gasps> what do you think? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's my thought on gosh. that. What, you you know what what's you so that? well no what's so interesting about what you're saying uh, gosh yes to all of that I, I I love that and I love how you've taken the idea of a gatekeeper and said it's opening the gate mm -hmm. like you can look at it both ways and and thank you for that um, what I talked to Mabel about is that it feels sometimes like you have to leave your community and have success somewhere else in order for them to recognize you yeah. it's such a bizarre thing mm -hmm. right so uh but i but i just love what you're saying and theaters here and everywhere i want you to receive it that you have fabulous artists in your community mm -hmm. and you know recognize them and bring them in because i think it's it's only for the good of the community and yeah right i think and i think part of that too is the folks who are in leadership positions at a theater, for example, how often are, do they have their eye on the next place or, you know, trying to build a national reputation for themselves, building that network elsewhere because they're right. thinking I'll, I'll leave. Right. Versus the idea of saying like, hey, I'm here in this role. I'm a part of this community. I want to contribute to this community. So I have tried to do that in my life. You know, I've, I've lived in many different places, Washington, D.C., New York City, Seattle. Uh, I studied, uh, I got my MFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. So I got to live in Vancouver oh. for a while. <laughs> now I'm here in San Luis Obispo. Um, and that kind of community connection, um, that's really important to me, right? It's, it's I, I I want to create theater that speaks to the immediate community. Um, Mabel and I well, were part of this really awesome program based up in Olympia, right, at Olympia Family Theater, that was specifically about creating theater pieces for particular communities, working with young people from these communities, right? Mabel? Oh my God. Uh, have you talked about that on this? Oh yes, because it's one of my yes. favorite projects. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. oh my gosh, well, what was your, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, oh, no, Mabel. Go, 
Please no, continue. let's let's hear Ramon's part. Because you we've already I, talked about mine at length on this um podcast. So, <laughs> so yeah. But actually what I what I love about that project is so Ramon and I knew each other from Reimagine. So we'll talk about Reimagine later. But then I got to know you even more um through the Fully Vax project. So that's the Olympia Family Theater. Um so talk about that experience. How was that for you? Because that was a really cool experience. We were co-creating with young people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, you know, that was really important to me for a few reasons. One, I had just moved to California um, right at the beginning of, of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, I was born and raised in the Seattle area. Before this position, I was teaching at a university in central Washington, Central Washington University in Ellensburg, Washington. Um, so I still consider Seattle, Washington, the Pacific Northwest, like my home. Um, although I, I'm, I'm living and I'm in community with the Central Coast. That's kind of how I think about it, right? But I love the opportunity, one, to stay connected to my home. You know, Olympia is just south of, of, of Seattle. Um, to do something that had a public purpose. Um, these plays were not meant to be a diversion from the pandemic. They were not meant to be something to you know, just, just lift your spirits, right? I think those ended up being part of it, right? But the real mission of it was it actually had an educational theater purpose, right? It's let's look at this idea of masking and vaccination especially and look at reasons why people do get vaccinated, are hesitant to get vaccinated or refusing to get vaccinated, right? Um, but I think every theater artist, the fact that they hired playwrights to do this and not psychologists, right, or motivational speakers is recognizing that story can, can convey messages in a very powerful and visceral way, right? Uh, and because it was Olympia Family Theater who works with young people in collaboration with Wash Masks, right, which was working primarily in, uh, with, with a lot of agricultural workers and, and uh, uh, food service workers, packaging service workers, these were the constituencies that we're working with. I said these were going to be our audiences, right? So by having young people from these communities talking to these playwrights, right, so generating their ideas, you know, we had some students who were saying, yeah, I, I got vaccinated as soon as we did. We had some people that it maybe took them a while to say, like, yeah, I'm actually not vaccinated. My family doesn't believe in it, right? Um, and it was, I was glad we had that range, right? Because it allowed us to really say, well, how come? Like, what are some of the reasons why people are, are saying this, right? And so I think our artist brains kicked into thinking about, okay, what do we do now? when we have this material, right? And my play ended up being about uh, these sort of fantastical people in this world, creatures in this world that we find fantastical, like uh, Sasquatches and Lechuzas and, and things like that. Um, they actually are real in a parallel universe. And in that parallel universe, animals like dogs and cats are the fantastical creatures, right? So they end up bridging, they end up meeting each other, right? But the creatures from that world who are visiting this world have preconceptions. They have some prejudices. They have some, oh, I heard these things are evil. I've heard bad things about this. And one of the things is about the rain, right? I heard the rain is really, really dangerous, right? Mm. So the rain became a stand-in for all kinds of fears and um, conspiracies and uh, 
suspicions and things like that. And so the story is about how these creatures start to think about those things, right? And one, one of the two creatures from the other land changes and sort of takes the chance with some protection, an umbrella, to, uh-huh. go, out into the, to go out into the rain. And the other person is still doubtful, but goes out with an umbrella be- to protect their friend. Right. So for themselves, they're like, I still don't, I still think the rain is dangerous, but I don't want you to be by yourself. So I'm going to go out with you with this umbrella for you. Right. Mm. Um, and again, no mention of vaccines, no mention of COVID. I, I, I with that piece, I, I tr- trust the audience. And I should say the whole idea of these characters came from the kids. <laughs> like we created characters and that's where their brains went. Right. And then I had to kind of make that work in my head. But my thought was by presenting an allegory, right, I'm trusting the audience to make the connection to things like masking and vaccinations, things like that. But not necessarily say this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing. Just, hey, here are how some characters are wrestling with similar questions. Yeah, I love, I love the, the metaphor of the rain. I thought that was so beautiful and brilliant so i really love that it was such a great project to work on i feel very honored to have worked on that yeah and yeah that play was alongside you know a play that involved you know lucha libre and things like that (laughs) yeah it was it was really fun yeah um so ramon i mentioned earlier um that you and I got to know each other initially through Reimagine, right? Reimagine new plays mm-hmm. in TYA. So do you consider yourself mm-hmm. a, a TYA playwright or like, what is your uh, 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 Go ahead, <laughs> playwright identity maybe, or who do you identify? Yeah, like? I think, um, I just call myself a playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, because actually more and more I'm, I'm writing for a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really first started writing p- plays for young audiences because I was teaching young people, mm-hmm. right? I was a fifth and sixth grade teacher for 15 years. And so I was reading a lot of the books that they were reading because um, I was teaching language arts and social studies. I was just, my writer brain was always picking up on the kinds of things that they cared about and wondered about, things like fairness and justice and um, friendship and communication and things like that. Um, so kind of just because I was hanging out with kids a lot of the, the time as a teacher, I was just thinking of stories that I would want them to engage with, right? Uh, and the first playwriting class I took at New York University was with a playwright named Lori Brooks, uh, who also wrote a lot of plays for young audiences. She wrote uh, uh, The Wrestling Season, which is kind of about high school students and uh, rumors, but it's done through these actors in wrestling singlets and kind of wrestling when they're arguing with each other and things like it's a really, really cool play. Um, and even though in her class, she didn't expect us to write TYA, right? Uh, she just took us through an exercise that was all about looking at milestones in our life, significant events in our life and thinking about, hey, most likely these important moments in your life have shaped you in some way. Perhaps they can be the seed of a story that comes out of that. Right. So my first play, Dulce, was about the death of my great grandmother. Um, when she was sick, my family basically sent me to uh, away with relatives in Arizona in the last weeks of her life because then it was going to get really difficult with her cancer. 
Uh, and then she passed away while I was in Arizona. And by the time I came back to Seattle, the uh, funeral had already happened. And, um, you know, my, my family, my other siblings had all gone through that together. But I did it. Right. And it was all in the spirit of trying to protect me and, you know, not wanting me to go through such a difficult time. But it wasn't until years later, 20 years later, that I realized like I actually had a lot of unprocessed grief about that because I did not go through that process. Right. So this play became about a similar situation. This little boy comes home and his grandmother has passed away. And his mother and sister, especially, just trying to, yeah, are you okay? You're fine, right? You're okay? And just kind of because they're going through their own feelings of grief, not really realizing that this chubby little boy is, doesn't know what to do, right? And so in the play, Abuelita comes back, uh, appears to this little boy, and she's got this... Uh, a secret stash of candy that she wants to give him uh, that he's been forbidden to eat by his mom. But this stash of candy actually has this other hidden treasure that connects to her history and his mother's history and his sister's history and things like that. So that started as something that really happened to me. And then as I started to revise, you know, this character became his own person. This family became their own family. And I started to find this story that was about, not just about letting young people feel the full spectrum of emotions, including around grief, but a strategy for dealing with loss, which is to find connections mm. to those who are still here. Right, so this little boy and his sister are arguing all the time. Uh, if you've ever seen siblings, like young siblings, like sometimes they can get into some pretty big arguments with each other, right? So this little boy, Memo, starts to see his grandmother in not only his mother, but also his sister. And he learns to really see them in a new way and respect them and love them in a new way as a way to, sh to remember his grandmother. Right? So I think in everything that I do, but especially in the plays that I write for young audiences, there is this idea in my head of trying to show some sort of wisdom or insight that I've picked up uh, you know, in the decades since I was that age. Um, so I think because of that, as I get older, my characters are now starting to get older. Uh, so now I, I've, I've been writing a lot of plays about characters in their 20s um, because that was such a critical time for me. I think of what I was like at age 20 and what I was like at age 30 and massive transformation in that 10 years, right? And, you know, there's a lot of actors coming out of college a lot of actors coming out of graduate schools who are in their 20s, early 30s. But there's actually not much written for characters that are that particular age, right? They kind of, it's either young people, like high school students, or like people in their 40s, right? And so knowing that that was such a critical time for me and knowing that there's a lot of talent that really wants to, you know, figure out how to go through life at this age, um, it's just really fascinating to write for that age. And, you know, I work with a lot of college students and I work with graduate students uh, in other capacities too. Um, it just makes sense. And I feel like 20 years beyond that age myself, I finally have enough distance to look at it and have some, something to say about it. And I imagine as I get older, I'll start writing. <laughs> that's right. Eventually. But that's just kind of my thought, right. Of, um, 
as as a as a both a playwright and an educator, I want to present questions and but also ideas, right? It's like here, here's a thought about that question, right? Not just questions, right? Because I think sometimes you can having an idea to wrestle with, you can agree with it, you can disagree with it, you can partially agree with it, but it's another way to to access what that story might be about, right? So you are a professor. <laughs> Um, yeah. And your work, what classes do you teach? Uh, I teach playwriting. I teach script analysis. I teach a class in Latinx theater. Uh, I also direct for our main stage. I'm actually directing a show right now, uh, Somewhere, A Primer for the End of Days by Maricela Trevino oh, Huerta. Nice. Um, yeah, those are the classes that I teach right now. So what wisdom do you impart upon your students in this uncertain world of theater that they're possibly mm -hmm. um, planning to head into as, as professionals, as theater professionals? That's a great question. Um, I try to be honest. You know, I, I, I believe it's important to talk about the realities of the profession, right? So I talk about how does a playwright get paid, right? I, I mentioned that even some of our best known playwrights and most reviewed playwrights, oftentimes they have a day job, right? Teaching or they go to write for television, right? It's, um, yeah, it's, it's not an especially financially lucrative job, right? The difference between working in theater versus working in film and television, right? Although it's interesting now because, you know, uh, the Writers Guild of America is thinking about going on strike and likely go on strike because the way that television writers are being paid is really changing now as well, especially with streaming and things like that. Like right. some studios are doing some shady things, like mm -hmm. not doing... Uh, What's it called? Reruns, Res to call them residuals, right? not Resi giving. Residuals. Yeah, the residuals are different when it's on yeah. a streamer, right? Mm. Um, but I think you know the encouragement that I give them that works really beyond theater as well is really look around the room that you're in now and what are the doors that are there? Which doors are opening for you? Which doors are locked? Right. Or which doors you're trying to get in and somebody's pushing it closed. Right. So you might have one, two or three doors in that room that are open. Go into any of them. Right. Because that next room is going to have more doors. Right. For you to choose from. Maybe you want to stay in that room for a while. But, you know, when I graduated from college, I would not have. I could not have told you that I would be a theater professor. I could not have told you I, would have, I was a playwright at age 22, right? Uh, I was gonna become a teacher, right? And I did become a teacher for a while. I guess I am still a teacher, right? But I found my way back into the theater through teaching, right? And I found a way to play writing through mm -hmm. teaching theater, right? Directing middle school students, right? And I found my way into new play development um, because of my work as a, a playwriting teacher and things like that. So it's really about going, opening those doors that seem appealing to you, because even with a plan, those things are going to change, right? And sometimes you, you, you take a detour, sometimes a detour is made for you, but there's always going to be new things to choose from down the road. And so if I had known that when I was graduating from college, 
I might have felt so stressed about, oh, I need to do this mm. at this age. I need to go uh, think about graduate school. And oh, but, but, but I don't even know what I want to go to graduate school for. You know what would be great? I don't know if any universities offer this, but even when back, oh my gosh, it's been such a many, many years ago when, when I was working on my master's, it would have been awesome to have a class uh, where we were told how to apply for festivals and grants mm. and internships. And mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like in some ways <clears throat> back it, it, anyway, back when I was in school there, I didn't feel like we were necessarily set up for success or to how to find opportunities. You had to be really, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the word would be, but you Hustling. had to. You had to hustle, right? You had to, you had to have yeah. a good hustle, but you had to know where to yeah. hustle. Yeah. Well, back in the day, we had to, there was, you know, the internet was not a thing. But... Right. You had to subscribe, <laughs> to, subscribe to like industry, you know, publications and things like that. That's you know, right. Think, That's right. I think, you know, uh, a dimension of what we call a liberal, liberal arts education is really valuing abstract ideas and, um, you know, like the, the brain work and looks down on hustling, you know, practical things like how do you apply for jobs? How do you create a resume, right? Um, I think that's changing because, you know, many students are realizing like, okay, all this, this conceptual stuff is really interesting, but... I actually don't know how to write a check yeah, <laughs> right? Right. or, you know, right. if I'm, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm applying for a job at a theater and they're asking me to think about, you know, these things like how to, how to market something or how to create a, a database or, you know, how to write a cover letter, how to write a synopsis. And I, I, I don't, I don't know how to do those things. I, I paid all this money and I don't know how to do these sort of entry level, you know, job requirements. Right. So Cal Poly, our, like the mission statement is learn by doing. So it actually has a very strong emphasis on those practical questions. Uh, another class I teach is the, is the senior project. And the way that we do that is students select some sort of project that looks back on their four years in the program. But part of that class is thinking about things like writing a cover letter, you know, how do you look for jobs, doing research on professional organizations and unions and things like that. You know, they research two different cities that they might want to live in, and it could be, you know, San Luis Obispo and New York. Uh, I encourage them to do one kind of crazy city, you know, like if you go anywhere in the world, what would you look like, right? What would you, what would you look at? And so some students are looking internationally, right? And they're starting to look up, oh, this is what you need mm -hmm. for a visa. Oh, you need, actually need to have like $10,000 in your bank account to even be allowed to live there, right? Which is unfortunate, but that's, wow. I'm glad they found that out right away, right? Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, for, for, for us coming up, there was an attitude of, well, no, 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 no. We, we, we teach high-minded things, right. you know? We don't want to get into the weeds about... Uh, some of those practical things. And maybe some of that is, you know, maybe some of our professors hadn't really had to do anything with that for 20 plus years. And so it's not something that's a priority for them. But I think you're right. And I think that approach, it's important because it reminds us that 
you are more than your job. You are more than your career, right? If you are in a position that is not satisfying to you or even worse than that, it's taken advantage of you, you know, you have the tools to then go somewhere else, right? It really empowers people as laborers to realize, say, hey, I've got assets. I'm bringing something to this company, to this organization, this theater, but I could also bring those elsewhere, right? And so helping even college graduates realize that you you have many things to contribute, uh, it does empower them in a way that I think, for me at least, there's a sense of, oh, thank God. I got this person <laughs> like saw through all the holes in my experience and they're gonna give me a shot, right? Instead of really, me really taking an inventory of what I have to offer, right? Yeah. I see that. Mm. Yeah. What do you want to see more of in theater? Hmm. I think in this country, well, I'll, I'll, about 10 years ago, I, I went to a friend's wedding in the United Kingdom and I spent a few days in London just seeing theater before that. And I remember seeing a play at the National Theater and I, at one point, there were like 35 actors on this stage, right? Uh, it's this play called This Is Thebes, I think it was called. And I remember just being struck by just like so many people on stage, right? And Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. It's the power of subsidized theater, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, whereas here, you know, there's theaters that are like, you know, we really like your play, but it's got five characters and <laughs> we cannot go more than four i was like yeah that's like a hard like yeah <laughs> i was like okay <laughs> what do you do about that right so i think what i would what i would love to see and i'm going to do what i can to fulfill that is just more original plays by playwrights and original, I mean, like not adaptations or just reinventions right. of, you know, classic plays, right? Um, I would love to see more original plays where the playwright clearly was given the green light to just imagine and just create an entire world. <gasps> Forget about the budget. We'll make it happen, right? Um because I think, you know, the only real times we see that with plays, at least, I think we see that with musicals, but not so much with non-musical plays, is when it's been developed in the UK and London and then brought over, <laughs> right, here, like War Horse, right? Just like that, that's a play with that incredible puppetry, right? We could have done that here, right? But instead, it's like, okay, let's let, you know, the Brits take all the financial risk and then the stuff that is a hit, We'll just bring that stuff over, right? Um, so that's what I would love. Again, just if playwrights in this country had more of a sense of thinking expansively, thinking on an epic scale, right? And creating real spectacle, if they want, right? Because um, not everybody wants that. A lot of people, some people just like to write the, you know, the small intimate place, and that's cool too. But I would just like that, again, that gate to be wider, right? Because I would love to write at that scale. 
Um, but so often, I, and I don't get produced very much, to be honest. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I've already encountered just questions of, well, it's a little too much for us, you know. We can't do that. Especially with original work, there's just even more apprehension because people don't know the title already. So, Do you think that Good. colleges, like it's a, they have a, playwrights have a better shot getting their getting these massive beautiful giant productions done in colleges or is that or is it even harder because it's hmm. not new work because I, I just think about the the resources that a college might have especially in terms of you know the acting pool right if you if you find a a theater program that has um a large you know they have to fill roles but but they're not tested titles so how does that right. what is the balance there is, yeah i'm glad you brought that up i, I I do encourage playwrights to think about college and university programs for production because while certainly not every program is looking for a new work, I think it's a pretty high percentage, right? Um, because I think in many colleges and many in university theater programs, there isn't as much pressure to make money right? It's not eliminated at all by any means, right? But if they're doing three, four, five productions, right, and they have that one kind of solid Shakespeare play that they know a lot of people are going to come to, right? I think a lot of just theater professionals, just out of interest and love of the art form, are open to doing one or two more obscure works or original works, that sort of thing. Um, I think, you know, commissioning is a little bit different. I think unless there's a special program to commission something that's new, um, that's there. But it's possible, you know, you, there, there's funding to create a project in the name of scholarship, right? And maybe that can include the commissioning of a, of, of a play. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, so many of these student designers and things like that are so mm. talented that you could get something that's really, really great. There's actually a program called Launchpad at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. Do you know this program? Uh, yes, I I feel like I just came across that uh, mm -hmm. n pretty recently. Risa Brainin, uh, who teaches at UCSB, uh, created it, and they do what they call um, uh, premier workshops. I it, I'll have to follow up on the, on the phrase, but essentially these are fully designed. Uh, productions of brand new plays that they work with the playwrights. Usually they come earlier in the process to work on the scripts. They have their graduate you know, students create designs for it. Um, I think sometimes they have scripts in hands, but oftentimes it's just a full production. But they call it a, um, uh, a premiere workshop. They have a phrase so that if there's any playwright who kind of wants that theater to have the official world premiere designation, uh, but still would love to have this, you know, sandbox to play and see it on its feet, fully designed, right? Um, that's there, right? So, and again, that's under the aegis of a, a, a university. Um, so stuff like that, I think is really, really fantastic, right? You know, a dimension of what we've, for better or for worse, what we've developed in professional theater is the development, the play development, 
kind of limbo <laughs> play yeah. development purgatory where you know so you know new theaters can create a play development program or a conference right um and you can get funding for that because you know doing new work is is very appealing to funders and foundations and things like that but what ends up happening is you know plays enter into this purgatory and they just kind of stay there right so they get <laughs> workshops and readings and they're they're wonderful and theater professionals come and they say they like love the play love the play uh you know it, it's not for us but you know just really congratulations right and then they go off and have dinner together and <laughs> produce collude and produce the same play at five different uh, theaters um so I, again I, th- and I think it's something that emerged with good intentions right but it's i think inadvertently just sort of created a place to put the new plays and kind of stay there um and every now and then i'm sure one will emerge from there um but the, the sad thing is you know, we're losing some of these really cool new play development programs like Look. the Lark and Sundance Theater Lab, oh, right? Uh, yeah. Banana Festival, you know, with their 10-minute play. That was that launched so many, you know, successful playwrights. So bummed about that. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's something we have to look at. Like how, how do you create a healthy uh, new play development system that's part of a pipeline, mm-hmm. right, that gets these plays into... Theaters. And the new, uh, the National New Play Network, I think is a, is a positive thing. They're yes. doing like their world and world premieres and things like that. So I think there's some positive change that comes to that, right? Trying well, to turn it into a pipeline instead of just like yeah, a little yeah. eddy where plays just sort of stay. Well, I think um, what you were saying, I while you were while you were talking about Launchpad, I looked at I looked it up, and where I had read about it was in American Theater Magazine, mm-hmm. and so yeah, so then I I remembered they call it a preview production. Preview production, Thank yeah, you. Yes. yeah, and then they continue Sorry, to shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they continue to shepherd new plays as well. So they might yeah. take an established artist, but then also new artists. So maybe the way to continue with that new development is through universities, you know? I mean, it sounds uh, like like one potential place. Um, yeah. And there are, you know, yeah. there are some interesting models of professional theaters that are connected to university programs, yeah. like, you know, Brown University and, and uh, Trinity Stage and, and Providence, for example. La Jolla Playhouse. Yeah, exactly. La Jolla yeah. Playhouse mm-hmm. and UCSD. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, that's an excellent idea again i think you know sometimes you you might have some mentalities of a professional theater that's saying well if we're connected to a graduate school then is that gonna make us somehow lose our luster in some way you know because we're working with students or on the university side you know are there people who don't like the idea of being connected to a commercial theater Mm -hmm. and you know, does that does that dilute the purity of our study? Oh you know, um, <laughs> I, you know, I I think I think I, know, you know, I, I think know. that those attitudes exist. But right. to me, again, as a as a, a practical solution, it makes a lot of sense for students to get practice in a professional theater, and also for professional theaters to sort of constantly be hearing new ideas and. Um, you know, sometimes students come through and they're like, well, why, why, is, why do we do things this way? This seems inequitable. This seems unjust. And um, 
maybe some people don't are uncomfortable with that of <laughs> having the traditional practices questioned, right? Oh yeah, but it's important. It is. It's how you it evolve. Is, absolutely, it's how you change. It's how you adapt. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Here's our asking for a friend, and this is in the spirit of your um, background in education, the populations you have worked with. What is one thing you miss about middle school? Mm. Besides the easy access to a milkshake machine. Wait, what? What? You had a milkshake we had, machine? We had, we had a milkshake machine, you know, and it was like a dollar. Yeah. What? Wow. Although I will say, you know, we uh, when I was in junior high, I'll finish the question later, but uh, somebody pulled a prank and they poured a bottle of X-Lax in <gasps> no. the shake oh, machine. Oh, that's terrible. And so, yeah, many students were just spending time oh. in the bathroom that day, oh. including myself. Yeah, he got busted. He got busted for that. Uh, yeah, you reminded me of that. I would um, hope so. That's terrible. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So middle school, well, something pretty profound happened to me while I was in middle school. Um, when I was in sixth grade, uh, that was the last grade of my elementary school, we were taking all these placement tests to go into, you know, this right math class, the right reading class and things like that. Um, and I was a smart kid, right? But in sixth grade, I started feeling pressure about being like a nerd and being uncool about this. So in sixth grade, I intentionally got some questions wrong on my math placement test for seventh grade. So I wouldn't get placed in like the highest math class, right? So seventh and first half of eighth grade, I was sort of like in these classes and they were really, really easy for me. And I did it because like the friends I was hanging out in sixth grade were in that class too. And like I realized in seventh and eighth grade, I didn't really like the folks I was hanging out with. It was like high pressure and everyone was really negative to each other and sarcastic and backstabbing. And, and I ended up kind of gravitating towards kind of like a bunch of geekier people that I met on like the track team and things like that. And of course they were in these high level math classes and English classes and things like that. So eighth grade was sort of the year when I said, I, I completely changed my friend group, right? And went with the people that were not as cool and things like that, but they were way more fun and way kinder and just way more interesting. And um, and then eventually like going into uh, high school, like teachers realized like, you know, you you should probably be in this other class, right? And I actually kind of got back and classes that were that were more challenging for me um but i realized when i think about middle school or junior high what we called it it's such a critical time in a young person's development and developing that sense of self um and I, that's why i think it's stories for that age group that really look at the reality of uh pressures that they feel right like the, the middle school plays that i've written um they're really about the friend groups, right? In a couple of plays, there's even no sign of the parents, right? <laughs> because I really feel like the profound influence on a young person's life at 12, 13, 14, 15 is that friend group, right? So how can you create stories that are about the self and your identity and what's important to you versus what your friends are telling you and trying to fit in and things like that? And just not saying everybody has to do as profound a transition that 
uh, I did, but start to ask those questions, right? Who do you want to spend your time with? Who do you feel comfortable around? Who, who makes you feel happy? Who brings you joy, right? Seek those people out. Find your people. Um, and that's going to set you up. Even if it's just one person. If, if a kid has one good friend, they're going to be fine, right? But it's the, it's the kids who don't ha- might have a lot of acquaintances, might have a lot of people they're friendly with, but can't open up to any of them because they're worried they're going to get made fun of. I worry more about those kids because they're, they're just keeping a lot bottled up, right? And that's it's got to go somewhere. So, so that's, what I, mm-hmm. that's what I miss, sort of like just that, yeah, that time of just really thinking about who I was as a person and, and fortunately making a choice that was allowed me to be truer to who I really am. Mm-hmm. I try to keep doing that, and I've been out of middle school for a few decades now. <laughs> that's lovely. Okay, moving on. Okay. We are moving yeah. on to the practical portion of the Hey Playwright podcast. We sure. are all about um, inspiring folks to get to work, not not through our own um, words of wisdom, but through the guests that we interview. So, Ramon, do you have a writing prompt or revision um, exercise, some kind of tool that you have found useful that you could share with our listeners? I do. It's, uh, it's for revision. <clears throat> And it's a, it's a set of metaphors that I find really helpful in talking about stories um, and helping us to revise, right? So they're ropes, strings, and threads, right? The ropes of your play, those are like the main things. It's like your central character, an antagonist, uh, a, a pivotal character, conflict, you know, those kinds of things that that's those ropes that's what the story is is hanging on right your strings are those secondary things you know so supporting characters setting uh plot is i think is a string because you can do a lot to mess around with plot and then your threads are kind of like the personality traits you know like the the lines the humor things like that right so when you write your first draft one, just get it done, even if it's terrible. When I write my first draft, I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many cliches, right? I often realize my, my protagonist in my first draft is just a cipher for me being in that world. And one of the other characters is way more interesting. So what I try to do is after I finish that first draft, I take that rope of the really interesting character and I say, okay, that's, let me tell the story again through that character's point of view, right? And then my original protagonist oh. just dissipates into the ether because, again, it's just me as a camera, like, looking around the room. Right? You, like, kick yourself out of your own play. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, there's a little bit of me, bit of me in all of my characters sure, anyway, so I'm just, I'm just fragmented in there, right? But once you have that first draft, you say, okay, what are my ropes, Right. Can I tie some of these ropes together, right? So if I have these two characters, for example, uh, what if they're siblings? What if they're romantically linked? What if they're uh, best friends, right? Um, By having them know each other already versus meeting each other for the first time, I just save a lot of time, right? They know each other already so they can get to the more interesting part of relationships. I'm mostly interested in relationships between characters, right? Uh, then you look at that string level, right? Like, what is my setting? Let, let me take the string of setting. Is like, is is that really the most interesting place? It, it, I wrote this play in a coffee shop, 
but these characters are both really interested in flying kites. So let me take that string of the coffee shop setting and let me just fold it into the kite flying string, right? Okay, okay this play is now gonna be set at a beach, right? Where people are flying kites. And it's like, oh, see, visually that's way more interesting than a coffee shop, right? Uh, and then the threads too, you can be like, okay, like, so this thread of this person likes to make jokes, right? Maybe that, that thread is, uh, humor is a defense mechanism, right? So how can I turn it into that thread of humor into a tactic that this person uses to persuade somebody or to uh, attack somebody, right? So the revision process is, but what ropes can you tie together? What strings can you combine? What thread will add an interesting color to that rope, right? I use this metaphor just as a visual to help people realize that, you know, you have this clump of material and revising is really about starting with what you already have, right? So uh, with, you know, many first writers realize like, oh, I need to add a character who, who does this, who brings this news, right? I was like, well, you could do that, yes. But do you already have one of those string characters, supporting characters? What if one of the, what would happen if that character did mm -hmm. it? What would that do, right? So it's really about working with what you already have, tying things together and making them stronger, consolidating characters. And it just makes the whole clump become that much more taut, much more, much tighter, right? Um, and not be constantly creating, creating, creating. It's really just about sculpting and tying things together. So hopefully that, that metaphor, the ropes, strings, and threads can help you all with your revising. That is fantastic. Yes, very. And it's a great image. I know. I was thinking about that. Yeah. 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 I want to make. I want to make a model. I want to find ropes and strings yeah. and somehow do it. Yeah. I was just working abstractly, but I, I'll. I'm gonna. Oh, that would be cool. Mix. When you were talking about the shot. ropes, I was imagining those gym ropes. You know, like when you go to the gym and there's like those sure. mega ropes, those very heavy ones. Like. Yeah. Yeah. That's really. Yeah. That's intense. Great. Um. Make sure that you want to make sure that rope's yeah, too. for sure. That's right. Strong enough to hold a yeah, story together. Love that. Um, Ramon, what do you have coming up or where can people connect with your work? We know you're on MPX. We love that. I am on the new play exchange. We yes. Love that your work is there. What, what, what do you have coming up that you'd like to share with our listeners? So the most immediate thing that's coming up um, in the first week in June I'm going to be at New Plays for Young Audiences at the Provincetown Playhouse at New York University. Uh, I don't know if you know about this program, Abel. Uh, it's specifically for New Plays for Young Audiences. Uh, it's over three weeks. Each week they have a different playwright working with a director, a set of actors, rehearse for a week, and then on the weekend they present uh, readings of these new plays in the historic Provincetown Playhouse. It's right there off Washington nice. Square. Oh, um, cool. So I'm I'm actually going to be uh, finishing my play, ah! which is my reimagined play. Oh my yeah. gosh! Uh, which is I describe as it's Zeke is a play for and about queer youth. It's a play with music, so I'm actually writing some songs oh for this. Wow. It's funny. It's about these kids who fall in love. Uh, two queer kids. They both want to be famous. One is a really really talented singer songwriter. 
The other one thinks they're a talented singer-songwriter, oh, no. <laughs> but really cannot <laughs> sing or dance to save their life. And uh, one actually goes viral, but because people are laughing at this person, mm. but this person sort of gets the fame that they're so they so want, but not the way that oh. they expect it. So it's kind of a play about relationships and about expectations that we have and wedding reality with what our idealism is and with all of that how do we stay a good friend how do we stay a good partner how do we stay a good person um so yeah so i'm actually going to be this will be the first time the whole completed play will be shared so that's going to be uh like june uh i think it's like a 11th and 12th that weekend uh, in New York City. Oh, that's... Um, that's the most immediate thing. Wow. And then the other thing I'm working on, I'm part of something called the uh, BIPOC uh, TYA Superhero Project. Yeah, and I'm working with New oh. Theatre in Minneapolis. Yeah, um, which is really, really fun. I actually went out there in December to, to meet them and start to meet members of the community as well. Um, and yeah, I'm getting, I'm creating an original superhero, right? A bunch of native kids who uh, develop these powers, and uh, I don't want to go too much into it. I, I was thinking even ask about it, but really have, have you started? Have you started? Uh, have you already started? Like I've started, okay. yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. What about you, Mabel? Have you? Started and we're yours? moving on. So, <laughs> <laughs> whoops, <laughs> audio glitch. <laughs> <laughs> we lost that material. Sorry, everybody. Oh, but yeah, that's that's a cool that's a cool project. I'm I'm excited. So very cool. Yeah. And other things I got in the another thing I'm working on. There's this a thing out of University of Central Florida, where they're working with playwrights to create short plays around mental health. Um, so I wrote a play called uh, "The Girl Who Talks to Spiders," because um, I wanted I, I kind of interested in stage horror. And I wonder, like, can you use stage horror to talk about mental health and anxiety and things like that? So, yeah, so it's about a, a girl who talks to spiders and she kind of comes to terms with this ability and realizes, you know what? I need to understand this. Wow. Right. Um, oh, my gosh. I feel like we have a whole other episode in us talking about, <laughs> I'll come talking back about for, stage oh, horror. Yeah. Stage oh, horror. I love it. That's a, you can, is, you can it, do a panel about stage horror. Oh my gosh, that's what we should do, Mabel. Mabel, isn't that the same? I was same? like, Ramon, there's some weird synchronicity with this. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. performing. So I co-wrote one. Mind Matters. Yeah, I co-wrote it with Alvaro, uh, Alvaro Sarrios. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. they're performing our piece tomorrow at the at the University of Central Florida. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So, I know they're reading so, some. Yeah, so that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. And I think the, the plan is, you know, I think these will be published eventually. Um, but the hope is that, you know, they get in the hands of high school students and uh, drama programs and they do these plays and things like that. Um, yeah, mine features a little spider. I love it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Is the spider talk? Is the spider a character? Ah. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, it's funny, funny, funny story. So that first play that I wrote, Dulce, was about you know the death of the grandmother. The first draft, Abuelita was not in that draft. They only talked about her. I'm so fortunate I had a good playwriting teacher who asked, you know, I think there's an opportunity here. You know, we only hear them talk about Abuelita, but we don't get to meet her ourselves. What possibilities are there if we get to meet this person that we only hear about? So I was like, hmm. I went back and we wrote the play with Abuelita. Ah, oh, the whole thing took mm -hmm. off because 
we see her right and we see we see her relationship with her grandson and um so yeah sometimes just those your first draft is just the beginning right, right. but i was missing a pretty important rope <laughs> right um which is again it's it's much better for us to experience relationships experience dynamics than to just hear about them right so yes. yeah theater it's about creating experiences for your audiences to go through together so experiencing the relationships seeing them feeling the dynamics ourselves that's a, that's something i took away from that first play lovely 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 wonderful ramon this has been such a wonderful conversation i thank you for your wisdom i'm so happy you invited me i i, I feel quite honored oh my gosh it's it's been it's been great and i i'm so excited i'm so excited to to know that Zeke is is continuing to flourish because I I can't wait to read it. I also oh, I would done. love that because I just am so excited for that play. Yeah, hope hope, hope it gets produced. I know, right? Like when you were talking <laughs> That's about the, the thing. Like you, you, yeah, you create this thing. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah. you know what? <laughs> I feel good. I think there's like a couple of curious theaters. We'll see how that goes. Cool. Ramon, this was an awesome conversation. I just loved all the directions that it took and that we talked about um, changing our minds about what that word gatekeepers and who they are and what to look for when you're in that room. Ah, gosh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really uh, appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting thank me. Thank you. Oh, I wish we could go to see the plays in Houston at the end of the month. Uh, you know, talking to talking to Ramon really just made me want to see him in person and see his work in person because I haven't seen any of his plays live. But I have a feeling that there is going to be an opportunity that comes up, certainly something in California, hopefully right in our neck of the woods. That would be awesome. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm sure we'll we'll have an opportunity. Um, all right, Tori. So what you got coming up? Uh just continuing to work on Remember That Time. Okay, cool. All right. Well I I, you know, I'm back in school, so homework and homework and such, Tori, homework and such. And uh, you know, trying to manage everything while working on this beautiful play. Yay! Yay. <laughs> So, yeah. All right. Well, we've got some more great interviews coming up. So uh, stay tuned. And um, we've got we've got a great closing to the season. So we can't wait to share the rest of the interviews with you all. Yay. All right, Tori. See you in the rehearsal room. Yes. <laughs> Bye, playwright. Bye, playwright. <laughs> Hey Playwright is produced by Tori and Mabel. The voice you hear at the top of the show is Freddie Padilla, at BK Spidey on Instagram. If you like what you heard, rate, like, subscribe, tell your friends, follow us on all the socials, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.